You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to this episode of the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Victor, and joining me is that friend to all mankind, that good spirit, that good soul, William Gallagher. You should probably write these down beforehand. It's that little hesitation as you try to find something now. Always scares me. But Do you not like them? Are you not a, are you not happy? Are you displeased? So far, happy, but it's Have always... I disappointed you in some way, William? No, you've just scared me. That's oh. all. But, you know, you're not going to change. I can tell. So, um, Ten seconds ago, also... before we started recording, you were saying that you had been heads down on the Angela Aaron story. And I said, well, so what's the Angela Aaron story? And you said, well, it's been five years, and it's her decision. And I, I said to you, what, what on earth are you talking about, man? You buried the lead. So tell me the story here from the beginning. You mean the world does not know that Angela Arendt, senior vice president of retail of Apple, is no longer senior vice president of Apple at retail. Uh, officially, she's leaving in April, but she's already been replaced by uh, Deidre O'Brien, effective immediately. So... Wait, wait, uh, wait, back up, back up, back up. So there there are a couple of things here that I need to ask you because this is this has just taken me by surprise, as I'm sure it took you by surprise. Yeah, it's funny actually. You don't I think the fact is you don't get very many big uh moves at Apple. Uh we had you know like the the head of Siri being pushed around recently, but you don't get uh, Craig Federici leaving. You don't get Angela Arons leaving, I thought. But, I mean, there, there's some know. occasional reshuffling, right? Some days Phil is in charge of the App Store, some days Eddie Q is in charge of the App Store, but Phil and Eddie are mainstays, right? They haven't gone anywhere. Yeah. It's a and, solid team. It's been going for a long time with really good, I believe, really good people in it. So a major move uh, is quite eye-popping, um, but whoever it is. So... I mean, retail has been one of those areas where we had Ron Johnson, who was good, and then yes. we had, and then we had. Although Ron Johnson was working alongside Steve, and so the Steve and Ron Johnson combination was very strong and very good. And of course, Johnson had had success at Target previous to coming to Apple, and he didn't yeah. quite follow that on as well at J.C. Penney. But but never mind that. Uh, J.C. Penney was their own story, and of course, they're admired in their own closings of stores and stuff right now. Now. Indeed. Then we had John Brown from Dixon's. John Browett, wasn't it? Yes, John Browett. Right. Uh, I would know that name better than you. After Ron Johnson, then we had John Browett, who was was a first-class nonce. Okay, that seems harsh. It certainly, should we say he was unsuccessful? Is that more and, polite? Uh, is that is that more acceptable and polite company to say? It is also, I don't know the details of it. I just, I was kind of against him uh, when he started because he was head of Dixon's, which was a UK store, very well known for poor customer service. So him being hired as head of retail, he kind of came preloaded with some baggage for me. And I don't know the details of what he did. I just know he didn't do it for very long. So really, I mean, he had nine months in the job. So really, head of Apple retail, it was uh, uh, the Ron and Steve show. Then there was this caretaker bit in the middle where Tim Cook uh, took over from Browett for a while. And then there's been Angela Ahrens. And uh, of important jobs in Apple, head of all of the stores, including the online one, uh, it's gigantic. So a move here is, is massive. It is. Now, now Browett didn't last very long because it's, it's very clear when you get to Apple if you're going to be effective or not and if you align with what they intend to have happen or not. And, and of course, 
He came from Dixon's and Dixon's has a history of epic proportions of poor customer service, especially post-sale customer service, which is what Apple prided themselves on. Yes. And both both pre-sale and post-sale customer service. And, you know, the retail stores were a place where you could go and have a genius help you through things or where the steps of service weren't designed to push you to sell. They were designed to help you find the right solution for you that you could then consider about buying. Yeah, I've told you this before. I was in an Apple store once looking for a particular cable, I think it was, to do a certain job. And the Apple genius said, no, yes, you could buy this one, uh, but it's very expensive. And for what you need, uh, you get cheaper over there, pointed through the store window at um, whatever electronic store was opposite. So they lost the sale that day. But of course, they came back and bought a Mac from them. So in the end, that service wins out. Right. And it's it's... You know, they, they have steps of service that they used to teach people in the stores, and I'm sure they still do, although they changed since I knew them. And they were things like, you know, you need to approach the customer. You need to probe what their needs are. You need to listen. And then you need to to sort of evaluate, has, has the solution that I presented been the solution that you were actually looking for? Does it sound like I heard your needs and presented the right thing? And if you do those those kinds of things in store, it's way better than directing you to sell the thing that the store wants to sell. And and that's what Apple always succeeded at was was selling the thing that you really needed to buy that you really needed to solve your problem. And under Browit, they slashed post-sale customer service to the point where it was difficult to get um, any sort of, of generosity or any sort of of you know Yes, you're two days out of your Apple Care warranty, but we understand that failures happen and that's so close like that. We'll just go ahead and replace it on a manager say-so kind of thing. And that still happens a little bit these days, but it's a lot more difficult. And that's John Brout's legacy is making things harder for the consumer. And that's a legacy that you're saying Andrew Harris didn't uh, supersede. Well, it never, it never rose to her level of awareness that, that there was even a problem. You know, had had Browett not oh. been there historically and we'd gone straight to Angela Aarons, then I expect those policies would have probably continued and it would have been glorious. But it, it was it's never just brought to her attention that these things and changes have been made. You know, some people when they come into make position. That presumption. Uh, we don't know what she was told or what she looked for. Uh, but uh, she didn't appear to act on them. Yes, I see your point. So let's talk about things that she did act on for a moment. Obviously there have been sweeping changes. You know, we, we originally didn't have these sorts. We, we, you know, early, early on in the very beginning of the stores, there was the store theater and there were some educational days, but that went away for a while. The theater has disappeared from the stores during remodels and so forth. And now we have today at Apple, we went from having very little in the way of education during the John Browett period to having a lot of education now and not just education, but sort of gathering and cultural, you know, informing each other. Yes. Okay. That makes sense. What me. other kinds of changes uh, do you think we've seen in the, in the stores that you would highlight? Well, and I see the thing I'm interested in is I, I think, um, uh, when he came from Dixon's, your man just wanted to make a big splash and be seen for it. Whereas when Arendt's came from Burberry, she was more concerned with the sort of longer term thing. So her biggest moves, I think we'll never see. They were all, uh, in, in house internal stuff. I think she's improved Apple's systems and she's also then brought forward, uh, today at Apple and overseen many more, uh, store launches and revamps and things. But I, I think she's more, um, 
uh, skeletal change. She's set them up very well for the future is how it seems to me. So I think that's quite good, really. A little bit there. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, there there were some other changes here. I'm trying to think of them for a moment. It's just because there's, there's so much going on, right? It's... Um... I've got to say, I am very interested. I mean, I'm interested in Angela Arendt because she's a really interesting person. But I'm also, I think her position at Apple is fascinating. So in a way, my interest is kind of immediately transferred uh, to Deirdre O'Brien, who has this uh, amazing history at Apple that actually very few people know anything about. She's been there three decades, but uh, she isn't... um, really referred to much in history. She's been part of Apple Manufacturing. Uh, I think there's a piece Fortune magazine talks about how she was very good on uh, demand um, predictions and things like this. But uh, for somebody, uh, compared to Aaron, she has a very low profile. And I think that's uh, terribly interesting. We'll see what will come of her. I, 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 think, I think what I would say is that, so 30 years is 1989. Now, 1999 yes. was was after Steve Jobs left and was working on Next, and before his return in 97, when they immediately had to work on both reinvigorating people, creating the culture that Apple would become again, and making the hard transition from System 7 to System 8 and the Motorola processors to PowerPC processors. Well, also, okay, so the 6800 68,000 processors to the the PowerPC processors. There are a huge number of transitions that had to take place. And that was a time period where a lot of people sort of fell into the old Apple and and went by the wayside and got dismissed or went somewhere else, and the new Apple that became successful. And it's amazing that she made that transition to the new Apple and made it so strongly that she's been here all this time. You know, it was one of those time periods when Johnny Ive was tempted to leave Apple, even. Mm. So making it through that transition is a big deal. Now, I was I was going back to thinking about some of the changes at at retail under that RNs. So, Angel improved the infrastructure of Apple retail. There was before online and retail were separate and now they're unified. You know, when you, you used to have a large number of things that were carried online that were not carried in retail and that that's still somewhat true, but they used to have separate buyers for them, for example. All right, now I didn't realize that because I've just I read an uh, interview just a few days actually ago. She did an interview with uh, Vogue Business about um, you know, the future of retail, and one of the things she mentioned was that I thought she was talking about companies other than Apple. That there's this idea that you might have a store and then people go and buy online. You don't see that as a failure of the store. You see the two working together. It's still a sale to the company. Um, but you're saying that's actually a direct. Uh, part of her having brought these things together. That's oh, absolutely. So, in let's say 2010, 2011, there were different people in buying roles at Apple. There were there were people that were buyers for online, and there were separately positions that were buyers for the in-store physical retail store. Mind and, you, they're just and, selling Apple gear, aren't they? So buying. No, is no, just... no, 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 no. No, you're making a mistake when you think about that. They're selling all of the accessories from all of the third parties. So oh, okay. the the Herschel bags, the STM bags for laptop bags, all of the Belkin accessories and adapters that are along the wall, all of the uh, all of the IoT devices now that are there that are HomeKit compatible, all of the third party cases that w- that were there for so many years, 
Um, all of these things have to get selected by a retail buyer or by the online buyer, or in this case now a unified buyer, and get chosen to be brought into the store. Okay. And there was a large number of things that Apple doesn't make that are sold in Apple Apple stores, both online and retail. And like I said, before those were separate and now they're unified. Now they used to work together, right? You'd go in for a meeting at Apple and you'd go for a buyer's meeting and you'd meet with two people, the retail and the online. But right. they wouldn't necessarily agree on what they were taking. Okay. So I see in retrospect, it's, I mean, sure, it got that way through logical progression and things, but in retrospect, it does sound daft. Um, so there you go. She came in and undafted Apple. I like it. That's a nice job. To well, I mean, it's, it's not exactly daft, right? It's if you think about things, if you're focused on your, your online sales and uh, you put one person in charge of it because it's big enough that it needs to have one person managing it. Or in that case, a couple of people, because there was always the assistance to the buyers as well. And sure. you know they're looking at their numbers and, and projections on and forecasting on what they think will sell and what they think things will sell like. And you know if if you're go ahead and unifying that, technically you're really just shuffling and turning the other buyer into sort of an assistant and and having the one final say on it. But really, they were big enough that it made sense to have it divided. And it made sense that there were things that you would sell online in number that you may not sell in enough numbers to put in stores. What was also right. daft was that worldwide was different. So the way it would work is you would have not just your online buyer and your retail buyer for the US, for example, you'd also have them for the UK and they'd be separate people and for Australia and they'd be separate people and for the Far East, Japan and China and so forth, they'd be separate people. And, you know, you could not, you could technically go and get a meeting with the UK buyer and try and get into Apple UK. But really what they wanted to do was be aligned with what the US was doing. And so you really needed to go and get a meeting with the US. And if you could get into the US, then it meant you could go worldwide. Hmm. Forgive me, this is a side point, but just saying it exactly that way reminded me. I once interviewed somebody at Microsoft UK and he acted like he ruled the world and had personally invented Excel. And for some reason, the fact that he was just in the UK end really tickled me about it. But there you go, another point. Uh, speaking of split roles, though, what do you think about the fact that um, Deidre O'Brien continues to be uh, Apple's vice president of uh, people and is now retail plus people and i mean specifically plus the plus symbol not the and uh is that they couldn't find somebody to replace aaron's directly or is it a logical extension of o'brien's role well you know if you were writing the marketing copy around this announcement you might say something or, or the pr copy around this announcement you might say something like the core of apple has always been the people right right yes. and yes. especially in the customer facing role where our retail stores are our direct connection with people. Our people in retail are, are so important and so critical. So it makes sense to have one person in charge of retail, in charge of today at Apple, in, in charge of all of these oh. ways that they relate and interact with people. But as you're not uh, writing the PR copy, what do by you the think way, I'm available for hire if someone. <laughs> but uh, no, yeah, it's it's. Um, I I think that you know there there are common things that people do that are are what we call human resources, right? And human resources tends to be making sure that that employees are up to snuff or performing well, that people are meeting their goals or targets, that people are meeting the company's goals and targets, that the um, 
that that in terms of having the right mix of people is a good thing and also making sure that you know apple has enough in terms of benefits and compensation to make it attractive enough to keep people the good people there and and you know hiring and and, and this minutia like seasonal hiring right christmas sales coming up make sure you have people on hand kind of thing and apple has mastered those things for the most part so you know the question is 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 Deirdre O'Brien also head of people for all of corporate Apple, which seems like a big role to be taking on as well as retail. I believe she is. Yes. Yeah. Uh, which means I mean I don't doubt her in any way, and I'm looking forward to what she does. I'm just uh, curious because stereotypically um, HR people tend to be very different from sales related people, just in the corporations I've worked with. So you know you. You've got to be certain that she's uh, incredibly well informed at Apple and they wouldn't use her if she wasn't right for sales. But it's an interesting mix and just makes me even more interested in her. Well, uh, yeah, it it is interesting. Um, But the way that Apple does sales is not exactly the way everyone else does sales. There's a reason why there are no great Gateway 2000 retail stores anymore. Right. Yes. Yes. You know, there's there's. Yeah, the the one thing that Apple does have to worry about is um, their ability to hire and their ability to retain, and w- at the same time, what it means to maintain the corporate culture that they want to have. And you know, that's part of what Apple University was for. But with every person that you add, especially in a key role, you are changing what the culture can be. And oh, so sure. it it, it takes like, yeah. yeah, and it takes that kind of effort to make sure that that things stay on the same track. But I would say that Arendt's moved the ball in a lot of ways that, that, you know, the, the, we, we used to have these massive lineups, right? I, I remember, like I said, last episode waiting in at 3am for an iPad in 2010. And oh. now no one does that because pre-orders are mostly kind of functional. Is it really bad of me to say I quite miss the queuing up? I only did it a couple of times to see what it was like, but it was fun. Well, it was a Great different era for Apple too. Let's let's think back and say that you know, in in those days, in in queuing up for iPhones, for example, two thousand seven. Yeah, Apple was profitable based off of the iPod, but there was still very much a kind of cult feeling. If oh. you were into Apple stuff, you were you were a little unique. You were a little special at that point, and that um, it's not the same at all now. That the uh, you know the, the iPhone is so widespread. Apple's stuff is so widespread that there is no real need to be to, to have that camaraderie from lineups. Well, so I, I'm still special, but in other ways. I see your point. Okay, um, and with the sheer increase in volumes that Apple's gone through over her period, then yes, that all seems inevitable. I'm I could be misquoting the figures here, but I have a feeling I read her saying recently that when she was at Burberry, the London-based fashion retail that she was CEO of, there was something like 11,000 employees overseas and then it's 70,000 uh, at Apple in the stores and things. And actually 70,000 seems a bit low when I think of it, but uh, that massive difference in what you said you've, about You've been in an Apple Portugal. retail store, right, and had trouble getting waited on, yeah? Uh, yes. Yes, 70,000. Apple Birmingham, uh, <laughs> fine at Apple Solly Hole, just to credit the two local ones near me. Yeah. Yes. So. No, you, I, you, I you go in, you sort right. of fight for, for someone to be able to pay attention to you to, to get what you need. Of course, that's part of what makes the um, going and using the App Store app and just checking yourself out if you're not buying something that's high dollar or has a unique serial code on it. 
a good had experience. A recently where I cannot remember what it is I went in to buy and I'd ordered it in line. I was picking up and Ange and I walked in and on the way in, my phone said, uh, you know, hello, you're here. Um, go wait over at the iPad table. And we're standing there and, I, and I'm just thinking, why are you making us wait at the iPad table, William? Have you just bought an iPad? Um, and that, that caused an interesting discussion, given the expense of iPads compared to whatever it was so, I was picking up. So that is using iBeacons. And, yes. and beacons and iBeacons specifically are a thing that no one has really adopted outside of Apple. It was meant to be this brilliant idea that you could, as a retailer, put beacons around your store and direct people to new things going on in your store. And also, by the way, be able to track where people are moving around your store, which would help you optimize yeah. your store perhaps. But they didn't really catch on very well. The uh, they are Apple, doing well in the Apple, Apple uses stores. them. Apple uses them to great success, right? Apple uses them so you enter the store. They can announce that you should open up the app. They can direct you to the iPad table, or like yes. like you say, you know, I I always thought a great application for them was the rental car agency, where uh, you uh, you you oh, here's your car, turn left, okay. <laughs> Right, you know, you 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 walk off, off the airplane. You're 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 totally uh, knackered from being on the airplane for ten hours, and you get to the retail the the rental car desk, and you have to wait in line for the rental car desk, and then you you sign all the paperwork saying yes, you're responsible, yes, you'll pay for the extra insurance, whatever, and then they say yeah, your 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 car is in slot E twenty seven. Right. So you drag yourself back out of the rental car agency. You look down the parking lot trying to find row E, and then you have to try and find slot 20. All this. Put beacons on every car and just keep them in the car. Power them off the, the cigarette lighter adapter, you know, the power socket. And use the phone to check out your car. Have it direct you with beacons to your car in the lot. You don't even read a retail counter anymore, basically. So you could end up all of that waiting in line. What's going to do next? I don't know what Apple. <laughs> No, very curious now. She has just picked up a lot of stock. She sold off Apple shares, uh, some number of them, in October, I think, and so made yeah, several million dollars out of that. I don't think she's uh, rushing to the unemployment office yet, but uh, she could well just nip in, sort out car rental on her way home. Yeah, she could do it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that um... – so she's she's got some cash, not enough to buy Necker Island, but she's got some cash, basically, is what we're saying. Yes. They're very curious to know if she ever comes back to Burberry because the company hasn't done as well since she left. But, you know, neither – I'm sure there are other companies that want her. So we'll have to see. I mean, it's it's kind of rare that you'd come back, isn't it? Uh, Steve Jobs may have done something like that. Yeah, you're right. Are there other examples? It's hard mm. to think of them. There, there are a few examples along the way. People who've been entrepreneurs and, you know, founded a business and then sold the business and then bought it back and and relaunched it, kind of thing. That happens from time to time. But it's hard to think of a worldwide fashion brand like like Burberry bringing back a CEO. It just doesn't seem to happen as much to me. To be fair, the only things I know about the fashion industry I know from having watched what Anrits has done. Yeah. Uh, I think the now I think the similarities with technology are just riveting, uh, but I don't know the history. Oh no, I I used I pay attention to New York Fashion Week and London Fashion Week every year because you learn so much. It's really mm -hmm. enlightening, you know, and it affects everything because if if you look, so every year out of those two fashion shows. Uh, Pantone picks the colors of the fashion show and the colors of the year. And, oh, I and they, that's where they came from. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. And so Pantone lays those out. And then if you look, every other product 
that launches uses that color palette. And you go into you go into uh, over here a Walmart or a Target or or anyone's retail, for example, and the color palette is exactly the one that Pantone has laid out. And that Pantone color palette comes from New York and London Fashion Week. I just assume everybody knocked off New York and London Fashion Week frocks, but this is a more scientific route to it. All of these things, it it's all connected. <laughs> the interconnectedness. It's, it is. It really is. We should talk about some other news. Now, obviously, Angela's news is, is very striking and, and is going to be a huge impact on Apple. But the the, the Deirdre O'Brien, that's kind of an interesting choice. I, I'm kind of curious to see how that plays out. I'm interested in the fact that uh, I don't know what our answer is going to do between now and April, because the moment uh, this change was announced, um, O'Brien's title was officially changed on the on the Apple website, even to be best. So presumably there's going to be a handover period uh, between the two. But you have the impression that O'Brien probably knows everything already because she's so well rooted in the company. So when well, will we see I mean, the difference? Maybe, but you know, if if you've laid out your plans and your roadmap for what you're going to accomplish in the coming year, and you've got your one year roadmap and you've got your your longer term five year roadmap of where you think things go, then okay. you want to lay that out and talk through and see, you know, here here's why we're doing these plans, here's the plans we've made so far, here's the actions that that mean that in five years we're gonna be able to deliver on the five year plan by doing the work in year one. You need to talk through that and and you know lay out here's all the, the, that everything is. It's not just a simple short transition. It's it's a longer term thing, and of course deciding if those plans are the same. Although you presume they would be. But you started to say it's not let us back into this. What else is going oh, on? Well, I've, I did hear the word Qualcomm floating around, and I thought of you. That's interesting because I wasn't even going to talk Qualcomm yet. You want you bring up Qualcomm? Go ahead and lay it out. Uh, well, I was actually waiting for you to be the expert on this because I know you've been following <laughs> the story. But um, Apple has won an, um, uh, what do you call it, a motion uh, to narrow the damages that Qualcomm can possibly uh, get from them. Um, right. Well, that sounds pretty handy, doesn't it? That sounds well, a little bit. Good. I mean, yeah, maybe. So basically, a, a U.S. federal judge granted Apple this motion to limit the damages that Qualcomm can claim in the patent trial. Now, what this comes down to is that Qualcomm – one of the complaints against Qualcomm is that they force chip buyers to sign patent licenses at unfair rates. And there, there's also been a set of charges where, where they've been um, asking licensees to pay twice basically. You know, Apple manufactures something and the manufacturer has to pay the license fee and then Apple also has to pay the license fee because they're shipping the product kind of thing. And so what this is, is a, a, a basically a ruling that says that um, they won't be able to claim damages from before the suit was filed in 2017. They can only claim damages from that point. They, can also, they, they also can't claim damages on all of the patents that they were suing over. They, one of the patents was rejected as being a part of this, which was a, a patent connected to graphics and power consumption. So... This is is generally the same batch of patents that Qualcomm brought before the ITC, hoping to win an import ban. Um, Apple was found to have infringed on one patent. The commission recommended against the ban. So that we're still awaiting a final ruling on that. That should come in March. It, it's just sort of all coalescing, right? There, there are these different suits around the world, Germany, China, so forth. And also the U.S. There's the the International Trade Commission is involved, as well as 
federal judges in ter- at the the um, in, in terms of the patent licensing issue. And so we're just we're just seeing these things begin to come together. You mean it could be over one day? A legal case could end. Hey, hey, the, the Samsung UI case took years, but eventually ended. I secretly wonder if we're going to hear news that they found a new way to appeal or something. Either side, don't care. It just always seems – I don't believe legal cases ever settle. But Eventually they do. Why. No, eventually they do. And you know why they do, right? Everybody gets tired. No? Uh, John Dice and John Dice kind I mean, of. I mean, lawyers, lawyers get paid for the hours, right? They bill the hours. But at, at some point, oh, right. judges don't want to see this forever. You don't, you don't want your career to be known as the judge who only oversaw this one case for her <laughs> whole life, right? Okay. Yes. This stuff has to come to an end at some point. And the judges are the ones who tell you when it's over, right? Okay. They make the ruling. And judges and so, supersede. So event, well, there are appeals, but you eventually exhaust your appeals options. Okay. And then judges tell you it's over there as well. Well, and that's you can see the end in sight with Qualcomm. Yeah. Okay, that's probably a good thing. Then it means everybody can get on with making things, doesn't it? What's Eventually, Apple making yeah. now? What's uh, Qualcomm making? Qualcomm makes processors. They make graphics chips. They make uh, chipsets for cellular modems. They are going to have some of the very first actual 5G, not AT&T 5G E nonsense chipsets so that you can actually have gigabit service to your phone under ideal conditions. So Qualcomm is not some some pretender here. They they do actually make stuff. Okay. And Apple's been known to turn a lathe every now and again as well. So yeah. Apple has yet to make their own cellular modem. Now, as we've talked about in the past, Apple's hiring engineers that indicate they might, but they and have- they made practically everything else themselves already. So it doesn't- Seem but, unlikely that they'll go that way. Yeah. They didn't start out that way, though, right? You know, they they originally were using processors that were not that bespoke. They just started out with a billion dollars and a song in their heart, a dream in their hands. You know, they, they, they were using now. they were using cellular modems, and then when around iPhone four happened, they had to get Qualcomm's because Qualcomm's the only one that owns CDMA technology. They, uh, you know, they were using uh, the the power of VR graphics chip for a while and then they went and made their own it, it it's it, because apple controls the operating system apple can dictate what it runs on and so they can start out with things that are off the shelf and then as they grow and gain more knowledge and more hiring they can and more capabilities they can build their own chips so eventually we may see them make their own cellular modem but for the time being they're relying on on other parties what's interesting about this case is that it looks as if it may require other parties to be able to produce the kinds of things that Qualcomm has had a lock on. So it opens that up. You know, if if Intel and MediaTek are also making competent modems that use Qualcomm CDMA technology, do they need to go and make their own? And the answer is only if they're really dissatisfied with the performance of the competitor parts. Okay. But right this moment, Apple isn't making them. Qualcomm's importing cores. The only thing actually being made this week, it seems to me, are 230 emoji. Ah, well, so the – here's – emoji is interesting, right? Emoji is interesting in in a, in a way because people use it to communicate and because there is a standards organization called Unicode that decides what goes into it officially. And yes. 
they decide what goes into it officially, and then people get to different organizations, render them slightly differently. Microsoft's emoji are not exactly the same as the the as Google's or the same as Apple's. And in fact, you know, examples of that have been the emoji for the gun, the firearm. You know, originally, yeah. originally they all used somewhat realistic looking symbols that looked like a firearm. And then Apple changed it to a science fiction ray gun like you'd find in 1950s sci-fi. And then eventually everyone else also changed it to that because Unicode doesn't specify what the icon actually has to absolutely look like. They, sure. sp they, just... they, they specify what the icon is supposed to represent and where it is in the font table, where it is, you know, numerically as a code. So that when an Android user types ray gun, that the, you, you get a ray gun on Apple or on Microsoft, right? When you get a, a frowny face, yeah, you sure. want that frowny face to appear on all the platforms as opposed to someone else interpreting it as a smiley face. Just as when you type uh, uppercase or lowercase A, you get the character 65 sent to your screen and your screen does the rest. Yes. Right. Across uh, platform. Particular number. Yeah. Yeah. So... Uh, I'm interested in that side. Um, there was, I think, a very interesting 99% Invisible uh, documentary covering the, uh, somebody's aim to get a new emoji in. But I never use emojis, so I'm not Well, really... you are old. Thanks. Goodbye. I mean, that's, that's why you don't use them, is they have no appeal to you. you. You don't use them with anyone who also uses them, and you would rather type what you intend to say as opposed to put up a symbol to represent it. Possibly being a writer might have a factor in this, but I see your point. Yes, I'm uh, aging even as we speak. Yes. And and there are a number of people, uh, some of them who tend to be youths, who will type with a symbol as shorthand rather than writing something out. And shockingly, they may not even punctuate. And now they're going to get another 230 ways to express themselves. That, well, I suppose that's I mean, good. there's there's a whole study of discourse in, in texting versus speech or texting versus other forms of more formal writing. And, you know, when I said that, that sometimes people don't punctuate, it's interesting because punctuation takes on different meaning in, in different contexts. When you use a period in a text message... People will say, why are you so angry? And you're like, what do you mean? I just put a period at the end of my sentence. Well, the finality of that implies anger. I have never heard that before. And the number of text messages I've sent with full stops in would be all of them ever right. to everybody. Right. But your audience is, is less and less composed of, let's say, 13-year-olds or 15-year-olds. The people that you're texting. So you're saying with. when I've offended somebody so much that they've never spoken to me again, it isn't because of what I told them to do. It's because I put a full point at the end. It's both. Oh, okay. I thought I had, you know, verve in my writing, but no, I've just got punctuation. Yeah. Okay. God Crazy, knows huh? what would happen if I used a <laughs> semicolon on somebody. Uh, oh. First of all, no one knows what that does anyway, right? Well, <laughs> you and I know, but I mean, it's it's a lesser used piece of punctuation. Would you agree? Yes, I was actually once told by BBC Worldwide that I should never use semicolons because people don't understand what they are. I asked uh, how this person who told me this was getting paid because I didn't understand that either. Um, but he carried on getting paid and I carried on using them and the public survived somehow. Yeah, semicolon. William, do you remember 1989? Uh, what were you doing in 1989? I was looking ahead 30 years 
to the future of podcasting with you and wishing it would come sooner. What about you? Uh, 1989 was, was one of those formative years for me. 1989 was incredible. Um, Are you able to tell us what you did or is it? Nope. You know, no, nope. sorry. I, I really can't. I'm afraid I can't even share that, but well, thanks for bringing it up. Then. You're, you're um, welcome. But you know, 1989 was, was a year of, of, we were sort of on the cusp of big changes, right? That was that was the year I think Tim Berners-Lee began work on what would become internet, would become the World Wide Web, rather. You know, I, I feel like that was a year when desktop publishing really began to become something into its own. We, we, we actually had power books show up at the school that we were using to make the school newspaper with along about 1990. You know, we, were, we were on the cusp of something big. It was almost there. And, you know, when we're talking about, about software, the software changes since then have been huge too, right? Yes, absolutely. They've been huge. Yes. You know, and there, there are days where I feel like the software really hasn't come very far at all. You know, we're doing the same tasks we were doing back then. And the computers are incredibly more powerful, but the software takes up tremendous amounts of resources now. We were doing the same stuff back then just as well, for at least some of it. But okay. – but you know, you feel like the software you're using is kind of stuck in the past sometimes. Oh, where are I'm you going asking with this? you? I'm asking you. Do you feel like your software is stuck in the past? Uh, I thought I'd be contrary here, but no. I think in some ways I am. I'm I'm still typing. Um, that's pretty much it. All I do. But I'm now doing it on machines that are a million times faster than they were in the 90s. So if anything, uh, I'm wasting the new resources of software. But I know this isn't where you wanted me to go. So lead me down the path just a little bit further. All right. So there there, there are times when I use software and it feels old and crufty and feels like I'm, I'm trying to make something work that just hasn't gotten on with the future yet. And what I realize is that it's hard to choose software. It's hard to choose what application you're going to use. There are some things you use because everyone uses them and they're the standard and you just must, right? It's, it's the reason why I try and not use Microsoft Office, but I'm occasionally forced into opening it because everyone does, right? But at the same time, if you're trying to find a replacement for things it's, it's, or, or a tool to do just the thing you need to do, it can be hard to choose. So Captera is the leading free online resource to help you find the very best software solutions for your business. They have over 700,000 reviews of products from real software users, and you can discover everything you need to make an informed decision. That's, that's a big deal because it's hard to know. You, look, you start searching for software and you might find two or three applications and you're like, well, how do I know which one's the In the time that we have left, I want to talk about a couple well, of news items, a couple of things that I think are important to discuss. Specific categories and we sort of talked about this last so, week. We were talking about responsible disclosure. To, now, to even th yoga this studio is a suggestion no matter what kind of software your business based needs. Based on Captera one of our easy to discover fantastic, the right fantastic readers. Um, Visit captera.com slash Apple Insider for free today to find the right tools to make 2019 the year for your business. captera.com slash Apple Insider. captera, that's C-A-P-T-E-R-R-A dot com slash Apple Insider. So I was talking with one of our, our re listeners, uh, Abel Demos, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And, and Abel's very smart, and Abel is concerned about information security and, and specifically where we're talking about bugs that crop up, security failings, and responsible disclosure. So, for example, there was a bug 
a uh, security problem that was discovered in the Mac OS keychain. Now, this was discovered by Linus Henze, which I also hope I'm pronouncing correctly. Now, Linus is a veteran security researcher, and he revealed the existence of this macOS keychain exploit. But he said, and somewhat controversially, that he's not going to share the details with Apple because of Apple's bug bounty policies. Now, a bug bounty is where you report a bug, and in exchange for reporting a bug, they offer to pay you for the bug because bugs have value. You know, if if you don't sell the bug to the company or or get some reward for giving it to the company, there are tons of nefarious people online who will happily buy the bug and then exploit it to the the uh, detriment of all of your users. So Apple has a bug bounty program, but Apple's always paid a little less than everyone else, and Apple has always had it very limited for what will qualify for it versus what won't. Now, there's a demo application that, that Tenza made called Keysteal, and it's able to extract login and system passwords from the keychain without having any administrative privileges. And this is regardless of whether the system integrity protection or access control lists are configured. System integrity protection was introduced a couple of releases of macOS ago. And basically what it does is it prevents system files from being modified and upon reboot restores them to a known good version. And this is through cryptographic signing and and monitoring changes and things like that. It basically means that you can be mostly sure that your macOS system is as it should be, as it was shipped by Apple and not modified by someone outside or nefarious. But Keychain is is a big deal. Keychain traditionally has always been a part of macOS uh, 10. And it stored your your login information for your your user account. It stored your administrator password. It stores network passwords. It stores uh, all kinds of things. And with the the addition of iCloud Keychain, Safari starts storing passwords in it as well. Now, this is not an iCloud Keychain bug. This is a macOS Keychain bug. So you can go ahead and and extract passwords, but you have to have this application running on the Mac that you're trying to extract them from, which means that it's uh, you know it's it's not necessarily a remote hack, but if you were a nefarious person and built this thing, then you could obviously convince someone, social engineer them to install it on their Mac, and then have it send passwords back over the network. So there there is a real problem here, but it doesn't affect your iOS devices or your iCloud keychain per se. Now, Hens's disagreement here stems from the fact that Apple's bug bounty program only covers iOS. It doesn't cover macOS. And it's uh, that that's a problem because it uh, places macOS at a disadvantage. Now, you could say that's an oversight, but that's where things stand. Now, even within the iOS sphere, like I said, Apple's been criticized as being stingy. You know, they pay what less than what third-party firms offer. Uh, and, and this isn't small money. This is uh, things like $2 million for a remote persistent zero-click iOS jailbreak. And the most that Apple will pay is 200000 which, you know, you can see why, why a researcher would say that's questionable. Now, researchers who are doing this are independents, and they tend to be working for themselves. And that means that they become dependent upon these bug bounties paying out. And so, you know, if you were just going to sustain yourself on that. Now, 200,000 is a nice number, but as I said before, that only applies to iOS bugs, and they have to be persistent, remote, and zero-click. Now, this keychain bug for macOS, you could say that it's persistent. You could say that it is, um, but it's not exactly zero-click in the demo app that he's written, although it certainly could be. Uh, 
if it were written to be like that. Um, and it's not remote at this time, again, although it could be. So it's, it's uh, an interesting problem. I, I think that my hope is that Apple will revisit these policies because it's, it's a very difficult situation when you have an independent researcher who's demonstrated the bug. So you know that it's theoretical and, or that it's even practical in that limited context of the demo and yet has not been, been um, convinced to disclose it. You know, last week we were talking about responsible disclosure and how the, the parent of the 14-year-old worked so hard with Apple to try and figure out how to disclose a bug. And it was as if Apple wasn't really hearing it or making it easy for them to do it. Here, th this person knows how to do responsible disclosure, knows the avenues to report it, but has chosen not to because it's, it's um, not attractive to them to do so based on the way Apple behaves. And, you know, there are people that think that this kind of thing should be done out of the goodness of their hearts. But if you are trying to you know, earn a living or, or make it practical to keep researching, then it seems that Apple should be willing to pay for something for this kind of thing, especially since it affects one of their core products. And that is not the only security thing that I wanted to talk about today. In addition to that, you know, separate, but in the same vein, right? There are popular iOS apps that use something called Glassbox SDK to record user screens without permission. Now, now, why would you want to record someone's user's screen on their iPhone? There are a lot of good reasons. If you've written an application and you want to see where people struggle with your interface, if you want to see what people are using most about your app, then this is a way of equipping your app so that it can go ahead and send back those screens and replay the session of people using it so that you can sort of understand what those interactions were like. From a user interface standpoint, it's actually really smart because it says that, that you're paying attention to what your users are doing most and what they're trying to accomplish most. And then you can go ahead and change your app to make those interactions easier. Now, this is according to an investigation conducted by TechCrunch. The analytics firm Glassbox and other companies like it allow customers to embed session replay technology into their respective applications. So far, so good. These tools capture screenshots and user interactions, including on-screen taps, and in some cases, keyboard entry, which are then sent back to app developers or Glassbox servers for further examination. Now, this is not the same kind of thing. It's not as polished as the screen recording function that's built into iOS 12, but it effectively, it effectively screenshots an app's user interface at key moments to determine whether its functioning is designed. And because it can do that, you can sort of reconstruct the mobile application view in a visual format. And... Technically, Glassbox, so Glassbox told TechCrunch that Glassbox SDK can interact with the native application that it's bundled into, and it can't break out the boundary of that app. So it, it can't leave that app and it get information from some other app. So it's sandboxed and firewalled off in that way. When a keyboard appears over the native app, Glassbox doesn't have access to it, they said. But if they're screenshotting, then, then you sort of think they could. Now, Glassbox customers include people like Abercrombie & Fitch and Hollister, Hotels.com, Expedia, Air Canada, Singapore Airlines. Monitoring users is nothing new. Monitoring users to, to try and do this sort of interface research is nothing new. But the problem comes when mishandling of session replays leads to sensitive information being exposed. For example, if you were trying to use the Air Canada app, Air Canada's app sent session replay data containing exposed passport and credit card numbers, which could be a problem because some companies opt to send the app data directly to Glassbox's cloud and not to their own servers. 
and and also you know you're trusting with that information in terms of your session for purchasing of of flights but do you really want that data living on long after that that flight's been purchased and furthermore you know if you tried to man in the middle attack it which is to say that you tried to intercept the traffic before it got to its destination uh, You'd find that most of the data that Glassbox was tr transmitting was obfuscated, although some screenshots contained unmasked email and postcodes. So Abercrombie and Fitch, Hollister, Singapore Airlines passed decision replay directly onto Glassbox, while Hotels.com and Expedia sidelined their domain data and really only sent it to their own domains. Now, none of these apps' privacy policies make it clear that that's what Glassbox is doing or that there's Glassbox technology inside these apps that's being used to record their screens. With companies that are not opting to include mention of user monitoring in Apple's mandated disclosures and Glassbox itself lacking requirements on its own, people are pretty much unaware that their actions are being so, so observed. So this is something to take into account, right? iOS is, is fine. iOS is secure. But these apps are, are leaking information, and, and sometimes with good reason and sometimes doing it ham-handedly. So... It's, it's not clear what's going to come out of this. It's not clear if Apple's going to make a, a longer review process or going to start searching for this within apps or if people should monitor their own traffic with their you know network analysis and see where their stuff's being sent, which is a little bit unlikely because, you know, who's actually going to do that in practice? You know, I, I can do set up Wireshark. I can set up things like that to try and monitor it. But on the whole, it's generally something that doesn't happen. The... The, the the thing is is that if we look back historically, right, the first the first so called app store was Steve Jobs telling us that we didn't need native apps for iPhone, that we should just use the web, and that web apps were the future. And that wouldn't have necessarily prevented this because there are websites that completely spy on session data as well. But it it would have been well maybe not that different than having these apps, except that it would have been something that stayed resident on your phone. It would have been something that wipes out from time to time, which is not bad. So that's another thing that you should be aware of, be concerned about a little bit. Now, Apple years ago in iOS 7 introduced support for a feature called Do Not Track. That feature has just been removed in the 12.1 version of Safari. And basically, DNT is a signal that is sent, or Do Not Track is a signal that is sent to websites, analytics firms, plugin makers, and ad networks. And it's a request to not track the user. And the problem with do not track is that it, it was never actually complied with, that, that you could make that request, but there was no penalty if the organization at the other end failed to honor your request. Um, even though as many as like 20% of people using the internet just want to be left alone and really don't want to be tracked, the, the private by design search company, that's DuckDuckGo, um, they, they say that the voluntary nature of do not track makes it not foolproof at all. It makes it about as foolproof as putting a sign on your front lawn that says, please don't look in my house while all of your blinds are open. Uh, but there are a huge chunk of people who use Do Not Track that are unaware that it's voluntary and have no idea that the request isn't being honored. People that do honor Do Not Track requests um, tend to be Medium, Pinterest, and Reddit. Google, Facebook, and Twitter uh, surprisingly do not honor Do Not Track. And I say surprisingly a little bit ironically. You know, you, you'd expect that Google, whose business is based on indexing people's information, is built around tracking, right? Uh, Facebook wants to know everything they can possibly know. Facebook is going to not honor, do not track. Twitter does not honor, do not track. But Medium, Pinterest, and Reddit do. 
which kind of suggests that there are ways to form a business online that don't require tracking. Now, what, what should you do if you want to avoid being tracked as much, right? You should consider changing to DuckDuckGo as your browser, or you could use the DuckDuckGo privacy browser. You could switch your search engine to DuckDuckGo in Safari on mobile or Safari on web. Uh, you could use a VPN service, and there are VPN services that are reputable. There are VPN services where you're tunneling to an endpoint at the VPN service, or if you're really uh, interested, you could set up a VPN to your home internet network and, and do that. Um, although that would not get you free from tracking, it would get you going through your home internet provider and being tracked there as opposed to being tracked through whatever mobile service you use when you're out in the world. You can turn on prevent cross-site tracking, and that's that's really it, turning off third-party cookies, which will cause functions and services to, to stop working. Now, Apple, Apple explained in their note that they're going to abandon DNT, but they are, are working on trying to make it so that Safari includes other privacy measures. So they, they've introduced new controls to prevent VR and AR app sets on websites from tracking user behavior. They've got intelligent tracking prevention to try and prevent long-term tracking. And Safari users are going to be warned when visiting sites that don't have SSNL enabled. It's also going to warn users when you try and visit sites that are flagged as phishing or malicious sites. And Safari will now log people into sites automatically when the password autofill function fills in the credentials on a site. So trying to do these things is is Apple working to try and help you maintain privacy because what we found is that voluntary solutions like do not track just don't work. That's all the time for we have that's all the time we have today. We'll meet you back next week right here on the Apple Insider podcast. Well, and that also brings us to the conclusion of the show. Thank you so much for joining us this week. I and my good friend William write for appleinsider.com. I'm Victor at Apple Insider. He's William at Apple Insider. And and what's your Twitter, William? People should go and bug you on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter is uh, smiley face fridge magnet raygun at Twitter <laughs> or W Gallagher. Oh, my goodness. Why did I pick fridge magnets? I'm, I'm trying to from? think about what... <sighs> Right, and my Twitter is Whiskey Cheeseburger. No, I'm I'm at V Marks on Twitter, and we like hearing from you. We're so happy you listened and joined us for this week. We'll be back next week. <laughs>